The Bible says what? The Bible says what? The Bible says what? What does this Bible say? What? Say what? Say what? What does the Bible say? The Bible says what? Hello, hello, hello. Here we are for another happening, hip-hop happening episode of The Bible Says What. I am Pastor what? John Gibson, and my good friend here is also with me. Hey, I'm Pastor Paul Desay. And we're having a conversation, uh, Paul. We're going to pick up and kind of change gears a little bit. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of kind of diverse topics, and I'm excited about our topic for today. So we're kind of taking a step back and looking at the Bible as a whole and kind of asking this core question, how do we know the Bible's accurate? You know, and we know it's been written. Where did it come from? Who wrote it down? What were the people that wrote it down? Who picked the, the books? How did we get to where it is? To, I mean, just all kinds of questions that I think kind of filter down into this one simple question. How do we know it's true and that we can trust it? Um, so, yeah, we're just going to jump right in and kind of talk about that. Paul, why don't you begin the conversation a little bit? Uh, how do we know the Bible's accurate? Like, I mean, what's up with this thing? This is such an important question, right? I mean, we, as people who read the Bible, um, whether it's been uh, all our lives or most recently, we just want to know if it's true, right? How do we know what we have in our Bibles is accurate? And so I think to really understand and answer this question, we got to go back. We got to try to understand how the Bible um, was written uh, and how it came to be. And I think the first thing that we need to talk about is the way that the Bible people, the Hebrew people, uh, told stories. And I just had this image in my mind, Paul, as we go back of this, the opening credits of Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> a scroll. time ago, on a planet far from here, some old schmo heard a word from the Lord. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, you know, it all starts with an encounter with the divine. Somebody encountered God, and they told somebody else about it. And eventually somebody wrote it down. And so it always starts with, like, this breathless encounter with God. And, and, you know, once you have an encounter with God, you need to tell somebody about it. So I encounter God and I tell John. And then John tells you. And then eventually we get to the point where somebody wrote it down. Oral tradition was very much part of their culture. Now, just to play the devil's advocate here, Paul, because I know when I share a story with someone, like take, for example, on my back wall here, I love to go fishing. And when I catch a big fish, I want to tell that story like it's an epic event, uh, all the wonderful things that went on with it. But, but, but a lot of times when I communicate the story of the event that happens, I tend to. Well, not me, but a lot of fishermen tend to exaggerate the story, right? Embellish. And embellish the story. And then it gets passed on to, like, my dad, and then he embellishes the story or change. And by the time you get, like, 10 people removed, all of a sudden, you know, I caught a shark in fresh water in northern Wisconsin when it was 20 below through 10 feet of ice. You know, and my point is, and playing devil's advocate, let's talk about this oral tradition because I think it is probably something that, um, everyday regular old folks don't know a lot about um, where we kind of scratch our heads and say, did the Bible just appear? Uh, did, did somebody actually see an event happen and then write it down as it happened, which we, we are going to talk about isn't true, but how did oral tradition happen? How did it not get, how do we, can, how can we trust it? How did it not become all wonky? 
uh, you know, uh, three generations down the line. What made that different than maybe my fish story about today? Yeah, or the telephone game, right? You know, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, so their culture was very much driven by memorization. Uh, and so, if you look at the Jewish education system, uh, you know, people, children would end up going to school about the age of six. They would go to a local synagogue and they would begin the memorization process. And so by the age of 10, a lot of the Jewish children had the first five books of the Bible memorized word for word. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Even Leviticus. Memorized. Yeah, even, even Leviticus. Leviticus. It's nuts, right? Whoa. <laughs> so they would have it memorized. And so accuracy and memorization were very much part of their culture, even though that's not the way that it works today. You know, we were just joking earlier, John 3.16. We're working on that one, right? We're working on memorizing I'm that. 40, I got that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so it's a different world. And so as we step back, as we go back, we enter into their education system in which children and adults uh, valued accuracy and memorization word for word. And the rabbi, the synagogue teacher, would would instruct them in that culture of oral tradition via memorization. And they had to, right? Because their world was different. They didn't have access to the written word as readily as we do now in our modern world. So, and, and that oral tradition was so important and so valuable because it, it took this divine knowledge, this inspired uh, interaction with God and and passed it from generation to generation. And for the Israelite people, that was the foundation of who they were as a people. It, it created their center. It created their understanding of how the world worked and how God related to them. So to, to put ourselves in their shoes, how deeply formative and important it was for them to accurately share with the next generation the words of God, because they couldn't just pass out Bibles. The oral tradition was their way of sharing scripture, sharing what God had said. So it was a part of their culture deeply entwined in how they passed on knowledge, which was true of the ancient world as well. Yeah, they just didn't have the ability to write things down. And when they eventually did start writing things down, it was on scrolls, and those weren't really able to be transported easily. Uh, even in the days of Jesus, you know, uh, a, a synagogue might not even have the entire uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible in scrolls because it was so much. So uh, they couldn't transport the Bible like we can, either on our phone or in a book, right? So they had to use storytelling. They had to use oral tradition. And so, you know, that culture is where we got the Bible from. Uh, and so we have to trust in that culture of accuracy and storytelling and oral tradition. Eventually, somebody wrote it down. And they wrote it down as part of that culture. Uh, and so there's accuracy kind of built into the way they did what they did. Well, and as we kind of move along with this conversation, moving from oral tradition to when the scribes began to start writing down the words that have been passed down for generations, you know, how do we, how do we, and especially in a world today where there's a lot of focus on um, biblical inerrancy, where every word of God is factual and without error. There are many theological camps that hold that to be true. So therefore, their whole foundation of believing the scriptures is based on this idea that every there is no error in the scriptures. There's no movement in the scriptures. 
and then there's the other side that gives a little space to that. What do we do? We, we know when things are written down, there are going to be little changes here and there. I mean, we have, how many translations of the Bible do we have going on today? I was just doing my prayer and devotion with my church this past Tuesday. And every time I read a scripture, there's a lady uh, that I love. She posts the message version of the Bible, which is another way of saying another translation from the original language. And we have all kinds of those. What do we do with that diversity and does it matter to the core truth of the Bible? What what hap- What do we do with that? With there, if there were little changes along the way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, in the days of the Bible, the scribes would copy, right? And so we can look back upon all of these copies and see uh, the consistency and the lack of consistency amongst the myriad of copies, right? And so if... 12 copies say it the exact same way, and there's a 13th copy that says a little bit different. We can trust the 12 copies, right? And so scribes were copiers. That's what they did. Occasionally, they make a mistake. But just like in all the translations, when you read different translations, you get a gist of the message. And so we trust that the message is um, there within the text. Does that make sense? Yeah, so they so even though there might have been little things here and there, it didn't change the core of the no. message. The, the no, absolutely of the message, which um, is the most important part, right? <laughs> yeah, and inerrancy. I mean, you know, we could go on, and maybe we need to have a separate podcast just on the topic of inerrancy, right? But inerrancy wasn't the point of the Bible anyway. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, that wasn't the point. It was telling a narrative. It was telling a story. And so if it's not like an instruction manual, it's not like every single word was equally valuable. The, the point of the stories of the narrative was what they hung on to. Does that make sense? The, yes, but it also sounds kind of heretical. <laughs> you know, and let me, because I've had lots of interactions with folks that when we hold the Bible, the Holy Bible, you know, I, I even, we have a family member, I love him to death, and he was telling this story at Christmas time how his, in his house, his mother never allowed anything to be set on a Bible. Um, so wherever a Bible was, you couldn't place anything on it you, or like a pen or a pad or anything like that. And his wife kind of is funny about it. She, so that on their dresser in their bedroom, she always puts a, like a couple Bibles on there so that um, my family member won't just drop his keys and all his stuff on top of the dresser. She likes to keep it orderly. But she knows because of his family's tradition with the Bible that he won't put anything on top of the Bible because he respects the Bible. Now, I think that's good, but we do go to a pretty, you know, extreme length sometimes almost to become worshipers of the Bible as these inscribed words of God where the Bible itself becomes holy rather than, like you just said, the Bible is a narrative that connects us with the story of God and a God who is holy. That the Bible itself, the pages you know, the whole, but I mean, it, the, the Israelite people had the Torah, they had the Pentateuch, they had the law, they had all these different parts. And now we have the New Testament. Well, what makes, you know, and we have our Bible and the Catholic Church even has some extra books within the Bible. I'm going to edit that out unless I'm wrong there, but there, there's just a lot of diversity. Is the Bible holy? Which version is holy? How do we get to the Bible that we have today? Um, I, I think it's an important thing to kind of talk about this, this idea of canon. How do we have 
what we have and what makes it special. And is it holy in and of itself? Wow, you, you just like dropped several bombs there. So I'm not even really sure where, where to start. But I do love the conversation about is the Bible itself holy? Um, and there's extremes, right? There's moral relativism one side. It says there is no absolute truth. And the, the other side is something called biblicism, which is basically the worship of the Bible. The Bible is the fourth member of the Trinity, right? Um, and so somewhere in the middle is this healthy respect of the Bible, but understand the point of the Bible is to point to Jesus. And so Jesus is the one who's holy. God's the one who's holy, right? And so the author is holy, not the words on the piece of paper. And so when we read the Bible, we are building a relationship with the one who is holy. Uh, that is where at least I've come to grips with. It's neither extreme, it's neither relativism or biblicism. It's this understanding that the Bible points to Jesus. Uh, you talked about canon. I think that's a great, great question. So uh, throughout the history of the Hebrew Bible, uh, as well as the construction of the New Testament, there is this understanding of the Holy Spirit putting together these books in such a way that tells the story that we just talked about. And so canon is a term they use to say these are the books that tell the story. And canon is derived from the Greek word uh, that means a rule or a standard, kind of like a ruler, a direction, purpose. And so the canon is this direction that tells the story of God. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think it's, I love it because it kind of connects to previous conversations that we've had that the scripture really does it it invites us into this encounter with God and the scripture itself communicates how God has done that throughout human history, right? It's, it's these, the collection of stories, these events where God entered into the lives of broken people and then uses those broken people then to communicate the story of what God is doing for all humankind. And it's really a beautiful picture from start to finish it, finish Genesis to the maps that God is encountering humankind where they are and then using them to kind of come together with this story. It makes me think of the question, though, and I've heard people in my church ask this. How do, how do we know, like, who picked the books? Um, how do we know that they picked the right ones? You know, did they, did they, were they interested in their own power and manipulation game when they're trying to pick the right books and include certain things over other things? And um, how, how do we get to the how do we answer that question? How do we get to the books that we have in our modern day Bibles? You know, that, that's a great question. So it's a process. It wasn't one person sitting down. It was centuries of dialogue amongst the leaders of the church to get to where we finally um, have the canon of scripture, the, the, the books that we have today. It was uh, centuries of dialogue. And I think that we can understand that we can trust the community of faith, the communion of saints over the history that they worked together and prayed together to come up with the books that we have. Now, there are some guidelines that they used. Uh, one was who wrote the books. And so were the authors of these books apostles of Jesus? And so they held up the ones that walked with Jesus as uh, more valuable than some stranger off the street 
right? So people like Peter and James and uh, Paul even, you know, they had these encounters with God. So the things that they read were held up of value. And that's the reason why, at least when you look at the New Testament, we have a lot of letters from the apostles. Now, the second uh, is, did it tell the story? Was it orthodox? Did they have consistency amongst the letters and the books? Did they, did they tell the same story? And so they used orthodoxy as another key to this whole process. And then, um, was it, uh, were there widespread uses of this particular letter or book? I, I like to think of copies, for example. The books that had the most copies distributed, right, were the ones that were held up the most valuable. So as scribes copy these things, if there was a thousand copies of a letter of Paul's, then there was value in that because it was widespread. If there was just two copies, then we're like, you know, maybe this wasn't uh, the Holy Spirit breathing through this particular letter. So those are some of the guidelines that the early church used when they put together the canon. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, that we have communities of faith. Uh, one of the pillars of Wesleyan uh, tradition of theology is this uh, this aspect of um, tradition, you know, that there's this this group, this this forming body community that comes together and uh, sees what's right and experiences the move of God. And that plays a part in this experience of deciding whether something is true or not true. You know, uh, if, if, you know, one person says something or if 15 say or experience something, it makes a big difference. And uh, we kind of talked about this, um, the, the experience in the book of Acts and Acts 15, 28, where they had kind of this, an, an example of how this movement happened within the people of God when the early Christian community had to practice group discernment about growing number of Gentiles becoming Christians. They met in Jerusalem, like they debated and they talked about whether the new believers should have to practice Jewish rituals as a part of their faith in Jesus. And leaders, they, they reached this decision in the scriptures to not unnecessarily burden new Gentile believers with Jewish practices. In Acts 15, 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and mm -hmm. us. Yeah. So they had this community event around discerning what was going on in their community and what they were hearing from God. Um, and I think this brings up a, a really kind of great landing place in this hugely diverse topic is that there is an element to this that we can't forget and is the most important element when it comes to uh, the biblical accuracy and the tradition of how the Bible formed is that God played a role in this thing. Absolutely. Faith whole, has to have a part of our understanding and trust that the Bible as we have it today is the expressed uh, intentions of God through human history and now to us these thousands of years later. That we have to be able to place our trust in the role of the Holy Spirit and God working in and through it in our lives. Absolutely. And the same Holy Spirit that inspired the authors is the same Holy Spirit that was working in the early church when they said that in the book of Acts, that it seems uh, good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Is the same Holy Spirit or that was working when they put together the canon, is the same Holy Spirit that we see changing lives in our churches today, that's changing our life. And so there is this 
a continued thread of life change, a continued thread of transformation that continues from back then to today, and we're a part of it. And so this faith is this belief that the same God who's changing lives will can change lives through this word that we have called the scriptures. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Though, if you really stop and think about it, this idea that the Bible we hold in our hands is collected stories through oral tradition, through the experiences of people down through the generations, finds its way to us in 2021, and we still encounter it as a place where God shows up and speaks actively. Like when I when I rest in that, I, it really like stirs my spirit and also boggles my brain. <laughs> yeah, no like doubt. God, God still, just as he spoke to people in the ancient world about his intentions, he still speaks to us in an active way through their lives and through the scriptures. And I think that that is probably the most important part of this whole thing. And the, and the hardest thing to put, put our finger on too is the role of the spirit of God in understanding scripture uh, and understanding what it means and what it says and how a lot of these themes like you've talked about um, that were important to bringing the Bible together are still important today in our effort to understand and discern the scriptures. That's why I value relationship with colleagues like you, Paul, where I can wrestle with the scripture, but know that I don't just do it on my own in my office, you know, with me and God and then decide what's true that part of the wrestling with God and wrestling with what truth is, is this engagement with other people, the engagement with you, engagement with the church, and the, why Living Hope are so obsessed with this word conversation, because it, I believe it leads us to a place of a more accurate discernment of what God is trying to say to us through the scriptures, that we need one another. Yeah, the Bible has always been meant to be interpreted in community, and so that interpretation continues now. Yeah. And so that is kind of a great landing point. Uh, Takeaway from this is the Bible was interpreted and put together in community and uh, it was written in community. And even Paul, when he wrote the letters, it wasn't just Paul sitting at a desk. It was group of his people, his, his disciples. They're working on it together. And now it continues in community in the form of our churches. Living Hope in Sandy Hook, interpreting the Bible within community. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It is. And it stands in, in like direct challenge, though, you know, just as a little rabbit trail, that over the last hundred years, we've had this distinct focus on a personal relationship with Jesus. And even the challenge through COVID to... to um, sometimes arrive at this belief. And I have, I have a lot of conversations with people about this. And maybe you're listening today and, and you've had places in your faith journey where you think I'm, it's, I'm in an okay spot to where it's just me and God and I can be in relationship with him without needing others. And this radical statement we've been kind of making, I love how you said it, Paul, that the Bible is meant to be read and understood in the context of community. Let's talk about that just for a second, because when I, when I read the Bible outside of the context of community, what are some of the pitfalls? You know, what are, why do I need community to understand the scripture? That, that seems like a radical concept to me, but it also feels right. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If you interpret a passage of scripture, uh, let's say an eye for an eye, 
this is this this is something that I hear from time to time uh, as a way to condone violence, right? Well, the Bible says an eye for an eye, and it does, it does, it's in there. Now, here's the thing, right? Uh, in your if you're in community, you might have somebody say, "Yeah, the Bible does say an eye for an eye," but Jesus said, "Love your enemies." So we hear then in, in community, in conversation, we are able to put together a healthy Jesus-focused interpretation where the person that says eye for an eye is gently, lovingly reminded that Jesus kind of superseded and brings together a healthy um, interpretation based on the doctrine of love, right? And so we need that because Biblicism says that every single verse is equally valuable, Community reminds us that we are focused upon Jesus, that Jesus is the point of the Bible, right? And so we're able to interpret it together. There may be somebody else in our conversations sitting around the table that would then send something like, do you remember when uh, Onesimus, the runaway slave, was forgiven? Do you remember that story? And it helps us put together a whole, a uh, bigger picture uh, understanding of Scripture. A holistic understanding of Scripture. Holistic, there you go. I love that. It's a beautiful thing and a a wonderful place to kind of land in this question of how do we know the Bible's accurate is being reminded of that simple truth that when we encounter the Scriptures, especially the hard stuff, which is the whole point of our podcast, the Bible says what, is to encounter the parts that make us scratch our heads and wonder what's going on here is, and and I think this is a repeating theme that we're going to encounter over and over again, is to turn our eyes towards Jesus. And let him be our fancy church word hermeneutic. (laughs) Let him be the lens through which we interpret scriptures. Let him be the one that gives us comfort to trust in the truth that's revealed in the scriptures. Let Jesus be our focus to be our center um, when it comes to all these questions that we have concerning the scripture. And uh, a great place, uh, a nice, comfortable place to kind of land in this hugely diverse conversation of uh, biblical authority and interpretation. Um, it's been a great one. Anything else kind of lingering in your in your mind, Paul, as we bring ourselves to a, a close here on this uh, interesting conversation? Yeah, uh, one thing. I mentioned earlier that there's two extremes. There's one side is relativism where there is no absolute truth. The other side is biblicism, which is almost like worshiping the Bible. Right there at the third way, you just mentioned it, it's the lens of Jesus. Looking at the Bible and understanding it through the lens of Jesus Christ, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. And so when we read a passage of Scripture, we always come back to, how does this Scripture point to Jesus? And I absolutely love talking about Jesus in community. And I think if we do that in our churches we read the scriptures and always ask ourselves, what does this show about Jesus? Then we have a healthy way of interpreting the Bible. And maybe our challenge for this week to leave you with, listener, um, is that when you're reading the Bible this week, um, why don't you take a, take a step towards maybe finding a new way to understand and discern the scriptures by reading it with someone else. One of the things I love about the Chronicle and that we share uh, in this lectionary reading with Sandy Hook and lots of other churches is that we conveniently are reading the same scriptures uh, week to week. And I think that is a, a powerful tradition within the church that reminds us of this truth 
that scripture correctly divided is in the context of community, and that we need one another. So we just want to poke you a little bit today. I want to challenge you. As you read the scriptures, read it with someone else today. Have a conversation about a verse that you read. Sit down with your wife in the morning or your husband in the morning and have a cup of coffee and talk about the scriptures that you read the day before. Have, have some conversation with your children. Have some conversation on Sunday mornings. Interrupt Pastor Paul during his sermon this coming Sunday at Sandy Hook United Methodist Church and have conversation about the scriptures because in conversation, I really do believe we encounter the spirit of Christ that will change and transform us from the inside out and then transform the world. And isn't that our great hope? Amen, Paul? That's fantastic, dude. Yeah, good good stuff, stuff, man. Yeah, this has been good. Great conversation. It's just like we're scratching the surface on all of this stuff. Yeah, and I can talk about the Bible forever. So, <laughs> And we want, speaking of that, we would like to talk about the Bible forever. Um, if you're a new listener, new su- subscriber, we are so thankful. I believe uh, we're, we've just launched a couple weeks ago, and we're now over 200 plays, which seems small, but for us and our little fledgling podcast, we're thankful for every one of you who took a half an hour out of your day to be a part of the conversation with Paul and I. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We also need content uh, and questions for content. So if you are a subscriber of The Bible Says What, if you're a new uh, first-time listener, if you're a long-time listener, um, we would love to hear from you. So you can email either Pastor John at eLivingHope, and we'll put this in the show notes, or Pastor Paul at SandyHook.org. We'll put it in the show notes today, but we would love uh, to entertain your questions, uh, to have some things that you've been scratching your head about, moments where you said as well, the Bible says what? And we would love to talk about uh, your questions in a future episode, so make sure uh, you check that out in the show notes today. Again, thank you for listening, Um, and it's been another interesting conversation. We're so glad that you took the time to join us today on Um, The Bible Says What? We hope it's tickled your brains. And stirred your soul. And most of all, connected you more deeply to Jesus. We hope you'll join us for another exciting episode of The Bible Says What? As we dig into a new topic that is sure to make you go, hmm, as it continues to do in my faith journey. Was there a literal worldwide flood? Like swimming pool on the earth, baby. Yeah, that's going to be some interesting kind of topic, isn't it? I can't wait, Pastor Paul. It's going to be awesome. Well, I'm Pastor John. And I'm Pastor Paul. We'll see you next time. Grace and peace. The Bible says what? The Bible says what? The Bible says what? What does this Bible say? What? Say what? Say what? What does the Bible say? The Bible says what?